Hi there, folks. At a time when all businesses are putting an emphasis on costs, how can we follow the same steps when it comes to our investments? I'm Aaron Young. Today, we might find out. Now, streaming right around the world, this is Ticker Today. And it is so great to be with you wherever you are joining us from. Also on Ticker Today, a growing number of people under the age of 40 are diving headfirst into the world of entrepreneurship. But first... Why is it essential to compare investment portfolios considering the differences in asset allocations and the significance of low fees? And how does an externally rated four or five star portfolio contribute to the amplification of investment returns? For more, we're joined by Mark Wilde from MW Wealth. Mark, always great to see you. Um, Talk to us about how we can effectively compare investment portfolios and why do we need to? So ASIC have really come down on this over the last uh, six months and they're cracking down on super funds saying you can't say this, you can't report that, particularly industry super funds. They're really uh, cracking up the pressure and saying, oh, yeah, all this advertising, is it, is it really in the, the members' best interest? So with all that increased scrutiny, uh, they're trying to make it easy for the public to compare super fund A to super fund B. But what we're sort of working out with all this increased compliance is that it's very difficult to do that. So it's hard for the average mm. punter to make a decision on what, what the best super fund is for them. Yeah, I'm interested in that because often when it comes to, it's almost like home brand compared to uh, companies that advertise and spend a lot of money on advertising and you think to yourself, hang on, I'm paying for this, right? So what can we, uh, what sort of impact can a, a difference in start and end dates have on investment outcomes as well? Well, to get into the specifics of it, there, there's three or four uh, agenda items that ASIC or APRA have on their to-do list that will, will uh, make it more of an equal playing field for super funds. So the first one uh, is that when you compare, say, an industry super fund to a retail super fund, you have to compare the exact same period. So if I uh, take a net adjusted return for a, a 13-month period or a 12 month two week period versus a 12 month period it can have a drastic impact on the bottom line so you're not really knowing what you're getting the other thing is that the balance portfolio in super fund a versus the balance portfolio in super fund b might have a completely different asset allocation meaning that super fund b might have more growth assets in their portfolio so it might be more volatile so depending on what happens over the course of a 12 month period in normal market events super fund b might have a better return but it it might come with a lot more risk and you might be jeopardizing that member's position. So that, that was two. The third one, Aaron, uh, is uh, time-adjusted returns versus uh, percentage-based returns. So some super funds work out their net return based on how much a member or how much money they actually have in there, which skews the rate of return. So what it should be is percentage-based. Uh, so you can look at no matter how much money you got in there and how much you're contributed, it's always going to be uh, the, a, an equalized playing field based on those percentages. And I'm really interested in the concept of considering low fees as well. We think about it with credit cards and the like. Um, Why is it so important to be looking for low fees when managing an investment portfolio this year and next? Yeah, okay, great question. So yesteryear, the most important uh, element of a financial advisor's job is to set someone up with a portfolio that they have high conviction in. And the only way we know if a portfolio is going to deliver on what they say they're going to do and the return mandate for your risk profile is by having uh, uh, being researched and rated from an external agency um, and having a four or five star fund, uh, fund manager rating. So what that means is that they're, they're, they're likely going to deliver on what they say they're going to deliver on because 
they've been externally rated. We know how the the manager's experience, the manager's track record, their team's philosophy, what sort of uh, uh, portfolio they're trying to construct. So all of that comes into consideration. It's objective. And if they get four or five stars, we know that they're likely going to be one of the better, better, better super funds out there or portfolios out there. But these days, you can actually get that portfolio with low fees. So I'm saying when I say say low fees, I'm saying less than 0.25%. Whereas in the past, to get a portfolio like I just mentioned, you might have to be paying around 1% or even more than that to get that portfolio. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, the idea of the four or five stars, obviously, it's what we want. Usually, you'd think those are the ones that cost the most. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, precisely right. So, um, I mean, it's a it's a very complex, dark subject where most people get confused. But I'm here to say right now that you can set up a five star uh, investment portfolio and be paying less than 0.3 percent. So, if you're obviously the fees aren't the be all and end all, but if you can pay less, obviously you're going to accumulate over the length of your working career. And if you can amplify that with the five star portfolio, that's likely going to get the best returns moving forward. It's a winning strategy. And uh, just finally, you know, how does minimizing costs further enhance the performance of an investment portfolio? Why is it so important? Well. All, all, all factors being equal, say uh, you and I have two different super funds and we and, and say your super fund gets around 10% per annum on average, and my super fund also does the same. So let's just assume that's the case. Now, if you're paying uh, 1% or even financial advisor fees on top of that versus a portfolio with uh, only paying 0.25%, that 0.75% difference over, say, a 20-year period, um, assuming that we both earn normal salaries, could end up being four or five, probably more, three quarters of a million dollars by the time you get to your early 60s. Yeah, wow. And, and I think a lot of people probably think about the now as in short term, as opposed to long term, right? So it would be the same when we're talking about fees, that it's really about the long term that you'll be yeah. noticing the saving on these fees, right? Well, I mean, fees are something we can do instantaneously. So you can, uh, with, with enough research, talking to the right people, you can say, right, I'm paying that over there. That super fund's offering this. I'm going to go with this option because I, I can see tangibly right now that I'm paying lower fees. But that's that instant gratification element. Uh, but what I guess is the more delayed gratification element is that we're in this for the long term. So as long as your super fund's objective, it's externally rated, five-star fund managers, then you're very likely going to capitalize on those low fees and get the highest returns long term and get the, the, get the most out of your super fund so you can have a comfortable retirement. All right, we'll have to leave it there for now. Thank you so much, Mark. Well, I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Aaron. A growing number of people under the age of 40 are diving headfirst into the world of entrepreneurship. This phenomenon is catching the attention of economists, sociologists, and business experts as well. But what's driving the surge in young entrepreneurs and what does it mean for the future of business? One key factor behind the trend is the accessibility of technology and the rise of the digital age. The COVID-19 pandemic has played a role in pushing young entrepreneurs towards self-employment. Younger generations prioritize work-life balance, of course, personal fulfillment and social impact, which can be more readily achieved through entrepreneurship. With strategic tension in China and the verdict out on India, ASEAN is emerging as the third major engine of growth in Australian trade as global supply chains now recover. 
Let's go live now to Professor Tim Harcourt, host of the Great Transformation right here on Ticket. Tim, always great to see you, of course. Um, welcome to the show. Why is ASEAN seen as strategically as important to Australia? Well, it's interesting. Uh, a lot of the Albanese government's focus has been on let's pivot to India because you know, China's got strategic issues. And yet we've got the third engine of growth, ASEAN, you know, right there in our neighbourhood, you know, with major economies like in Indonesia and Vietnam and uh, Singapore, you know, everything from very wealthy financial hub like Singapore to, uh, you know, developing economies like Laos and Cambodia and Vietnam on the Mekong Delta. So a lot of opportunity, uh, friends of Australia, strategically aligned with uh, Australia in the, in the Indo-Pacific and also, uh, you know, pretty significant trade agreements already in place with most of the countries individually and with, with ASEAN as, a, as an economic community overall. Now, Nicholas Moore is the former CEO of Macquarie Bank, of course, a millionaire's factory, as we call it, uh, urging the Albanese government to do more when it comes to ASEAN. Why do you think this is the case? Why more on ASEAN as opposed to, to some of the other things like the G20, keeping BRICS at bay? Why ASEAN? I think it's interesting. I mean, uh, you, know, we're, you know, I think I've been to about 60 countries around the world and Macquarie Bank's in all of them, uh, from across ASEAN to Kazakhstan, Korea, uh, to Latin America. And I think so Nicholas Moore's sort of uh, intelligence comes from that from that network. And I think it's uh, partly to do with, you know, with opportunity. I mean, a lot of the big Australian corporates saw uh, Indonesia and Vietnam actually growing a lot faster than, than China and India. And also, you don't have the strategic tensions, if you like, that we've got now with the People's Republic of China, which wasn't there 10 years ago, uh, say. So, you know, ASEAN as a, as a um, not so much block, but as an economic community strategically aligned with uh, Australia, and you have a growing middle class, which is, you know, what someone like Nicholas Moore would think about in terms of uh, investment opportunities for, 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 for Macquarie. Yeah, right. Um, and just talk to us about global supply chains, how they are recovering. Have they recovered from the COVID disruption or is it the end of globalisation as we know it? Yeah, it's sort of globalisation, not globalisation, Aaron. Um, this week on The Great Transformation, we have Christine Holgate that many, many will remember from Australia Post and Blackmores, who's now on Team Global Express. And she's also chair of the Australian ASEAN Council. And she actually talked about some of the uh, quick quickness of uh, flexibility in, in transport and logistics in Australia, facing COVID, facing floods and facing bushfires, whether it be rail, ship, air or road. And she's actually pleasantly surprised how quickly people turned around. And it seems that global supply chains, while still having their you know their, their difficulties there, she's more confident in our supply side response to the growing demand from ASEAN and, and the rest of the Asia-Pacific. She's quite uh, reasonably bullish. Uh, I, I expected the interview to be quite uh, negative about trade and globalisation, but she was uh, quite cautiously optimistic about the capacity of Australian supply chains to, uh, to, to respond quite quickly. It's really interesting because we obviously think about the slowdown, as you say, during COVID trying to get things shipped to Australia became a near impossibility as, as ships slow, slowed down. Uh, and that was also because of what had happened in that canal uh, with the Evergrande. But then we talk about um, planes stopped travelling and there was a lot of talk about making more products 
here in Australia. I mean, the United States talking about it as well. This is a topic to not be as reliant on China. Um, so it's quite interesting to hear that the idea that logistics actually, we handled it better than expected. What do you think? Is she right? Yeah, as I talk now, French shoring and onshore, and I still think you, you still run that risk if you put everything at home that if there's a domestic, you know, shock or blockage, then you're, you're sort of stranded. So in the same way, over-reliance on China, you don't want to go over-reliance domestically as well. But I think what Christine Holgate said was we had a lot of manufacturing industry, uh, a lot of pivoting uh, to respond to the health emergency uh, where uh, debt moulds and, and, and uh, gecko systems, some of those companies did very well. And I think she was pleasantly surprised by the uh, revival of Australian manufacturing and logistics during COVID. And of course, dovetailing with the other interviews on the great transformation that says there'll be you know a lot of renewable energy and a lot of hydrogen internally in Australia to run green steel and so on. It probably does mean in the future we're probably going to have uh, more of an emphasis on uh, on domestic manufacturing and domestically produced renewable energy. So it's probably going to be a, a different economy going forward uh, yeah. given the, 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 the climate innovation we're seeing. Yeah, and of course, don't forget, uh, we need to mention here uh, the Great Transformation hosted by Tim Harcourt right here on Ticker, Tuesday, 7.30 p.m. Australian Eastern Daylight Time. Tim, thanks so much for your time. Thanks a lot, Aaron. And more Ticker right after this. You're watching Ticker. We'll have more in just a few minutes.